right. So I think this is actually part three because Pastor Kyle did the first two messages in it the last two weeks. So we're going through the book of 1 John. So if you have the opportunity, if you have either the Bible app or a hard copy Bible with you, turn to 1 John chapter 2. I would love for you to read along with me. I'm just going to start off today by reading the passage that we're going through. It's the first 11 verses in 1 John. So as you're turning, I'm going to pray for us today. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for the word that you've sent us. Thank you that you came as the word made flesh. And I pray today that your word would be living and active in our hearts and in our lives today in every way that you would shine a light on our path. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, 1 John chapter 2. We're going to pick up where we left off. Pastor Kyle went through chapter 1 the last two Sundays. So we're going to pick up in chapter 2 here starting in verse 1. You can read along with me in your copies too. My dear children... I am writing this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing a new commandment for you. Rather, it's an old one you have had from the very beginning. This old commandment to love one another is the same message you heard before, yet it is also new. Jesus lived the truth of this commandment, and you also are living it. For the darkness is disappearing, and the true light is already shining. If anyone claims I am living in the light but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go having been blinded by the darkness. So one of the primary reasons that John wrote this letter, this is, he's known as John the Beloved. He was in tight three with Jesus. Peter, James, and John were the ones he took with him on the mountain and some other things um, throughout the Bible. But he always talks about he was the disciple Jesus loved. He just couldn't get over that. He just always constantly said, and John, the disciple Jesus loved. <laughs> He was always self-describing as that one, but he's known as John the Beloved. And so he writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and they're about love, and they're about light. But he gives us four different reasons that we'll see throughout this series of why he wrote this particular epistle. It's called an epistle, a letter to a church written by an apostle. One of the primary reasons John wrote this letter was so that we would not sin. He says it in the first verse of this chapter. My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. So he's not just writing this to us so that we will feel God's love, so that we will walk in light, so that we will cast out dark. There is all of that. Those are part of the other reasons he wrote that. But one of the main four reasons he wrote this letter, he says, is so you will not sin. So that's what this message is going to be about today. What does that mean? What does that look like? The entire theme of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is God's love given to us. But in an introduction to the book of 1st John, 
a scholar said this, the love must be seen, made visible as we express his love toward one another. John reinforces this truth. We are to be ministers of love in how we walk in this life, demonstrating truth and kindness to all. Remember that analogy, walk, as we walk out this life, because we're going to come back to it a lot today. To truly love others, we have to tell the truth, not just in our speech, but in how we live this life. It's the action of walking it out. Basically, if we say we're a Christian, that in essence is slapping Jesus' name onto everything we do. Everything we do and say, we're saying condoned by Jesus Christ. Which means, I don't know about you, but I feel the weight of that. I feel the responsibility. If people know I'm a Christian and I want people to know I'm a Christian, it's like if you're driving, and I've been thinking all week about this, driving and you have like the Victory Faith sticker on your van, which I just found out we don't because we had to get a new windshield, so we need a new sticker. But I'm like, oh my goodness, they're going to see I, I accidentally cut someone off or something like that. I'm like, oh my goodness, they're going to see it's Victory Faith. But that's essentially what we're wearing like a Jesus Christ bumper sticker on every choice that we make in life. So is our walking it out, are our actions telling the truth about who Jesus is? Or is our walking it out and our actions lying to the world about who Jesus is? And that's what he's talking about. So the people that John wrote this letter to, they had accepted, at the time he wrote this, they had accepted doctrines and teachings and beliefs about the Christian faith that actually diminished the glory of God. It was teachings that lied or watered down or like justified what actually should bring God glory in and through us. So they started to believe things um, about how to live that led to sin. They started to believe it was okay. It's okay if I do this one thing. It's justifiable. I have a good excuse. God will understand. But it led to sin. They were thinking about the choices they made, the lives they lived, the beliefs they held. And these types of things started diminishing. They thought they were okay. They were justifiable truths. How many have heard the phrase, my truth? Well, that's my truth. What about your truth. It's a really common way that we talk in our culture right now. Well, this is my truth. So you can have your truth, but this is my truth. But actually, Jesus is the capital T truth. And so there's no your truth, my truth, their truth. There's just the truth. There's one. There is such thing. And some of you in here will understand this. And some of you might not have known this. That is a conversation in culture right now. Is that there is absolute truth. Truth is not relative. Truth is true, and it does not change. We may learn more about it, and so our understanding of the truth evolves over time as we learn more. Like, I don't know everything about science. Goodness gracious, I do not. So my whole understanding of the truth is not full yet, right? But it doesn't mean it changes. Just because someone doesn't know gravity exists doesn't mean that gravity doesn't exist. It just means they don't know about it yet. So just because we have a different understanding of something doesn't mean that that's our truth. It means I have a misunderstanding about something, or I have an ignorance of something, or I don't understand something fully. I haven't been walking fully in the light of the truth of who Jesus is. Jesus says he is the truth. My youth pastor told me once when I was a teenager, and I have, like, this was so impactful to me when he said it, and it seems simple, but... I basically, I would go to him a lot and ask him his opinion, right? I would ask, what's your opinion on this? And he would say, Anna, 
my opinion does not matter. Your opinion doesn't matter. The only opinion that matters is God's opinion. So what's God's opinion? We've got to figure out what God's opinion is on it. And so my opinion don't matter. Your opinion doesn't matter. God's opinion matters. God's opinion is the only one that matters. And our job as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is to get to know what is God's opinion. What is God's truth? Because it's the only truth. And that should form and shape our opinions and our beliefs. John, the Gospel of John, 14, verse 6, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. We cannot get to God the Father unless it's through Jesus Christ, who is the truth. There is only one way to God. There is only one way to salvation, and it's through Jesus Christ. So he wrote this letter to bring the churches back into unity on what the truth is in his love and in his light. So that's the purpose of this letter, and that's where we're starting off today. Point number one today, if you're taking notes, write this down. Point number one today is this. Choosing to live in the light prevents us from sinning in the dark. Choosing to live in the light prevents us from sinning in the dark. We have to make the choice to live in light. Jesus says he is the light. He's the light of the world. He gives that light to us. If we choose to live in the light, then it will prevent us from stumbling around, sinning, looking for my truth, your truth, their truth in the dark. 1 John 2, 1 through 2 says, My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. I want to compare that verse to what he wrote in the Gospel of John. John 14, 16 says, and this is Jesus talking, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. So you see, we've got advocate in 1 John 2, and we've got advocate in John 14. One is John talking about Jesus. One is Jesus talking himself. And he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. Those two words, advocate, in both different books, in both different um, writings and tellings from Jesus, from John saying it, both of them is in the Greek, a word called parakletos. And I, I personally like this word because I had like an adoption advocacy blog for a long time called parakletos. So I like this word. But both of them are parakletos, okay? In the language that it was written in, and then in the language that it would have been spoken in, it was parakleta, parakleta. So basically the same thing, um, but it basically means this, one who is called to stand next to you as a helper. One who is called to stand next to you as a helper. Or another way it could be said, especially in the language that they spoke in, the, the language Jesus would have been speaking in when he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate, is a redeemer who ends the curse. God gives us an advocate as a redeemer who ends the curse. As I was studying this, it was such a revelation moment for me because in 1 John, he says our advocate is Jesus Christ. 
in John, Jesus says, I'm going to send you an advocate, which would insinuate he's not talking about himself because he was already there. He's like, I'm going to go and I'm going to send you an advocate. And we understand that to be the Holy Spirit that he sends us when he goes back to heaven. So what is it? Is it the Holy Spirit or is it the Son of God? Which one? Which person of the Trinity is it? Well, there's three persons in the Trinity, but they're all one. They're all the same God. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus. So Jesus, the advocate, his spirit is also the advocate. Does that make sense? But they're slightly different in their role. So let's talk about this. The John verse, like I said, is typically referring to the Holy Spirit, while 1 John is referring to Jesus, but it's not a contradiction. Jesus saves us from the guilt of sin. He saves us from the punishment of sin. He says, your guilt is forgiven. You no longer have to do the punishment because I took the punishment. It's like an instant thing that happens. It's this one-time moment where Jesus wiped away the sin of the world. Now, we choose whether or not we accept that. Where we ex that's where the term accept him as our Savior comes. Am I going to let him be the Savior of my sin? And then the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Jesus, our Savior... He's given as what can also be translated as another of the same kind. He's this Holy Spirit of truth. He stands next to us. So we get saved, that terminology, we get saved in a moment through Jesus Christ, our Savior, who saves us from guilt of sin. And then the Holy Spirit of truth he gives us, the Spirit of the Savior. This is a kind of Savior who stands next to us continually to help us continue to walk out our salvation. It goes beyond the one moment salvation into what Paul calls later, work out your salvation. That we would continue to walk in the way of repentance. And the Holy Spirit helps us do that because the Holy Spirit's given to us as our counselor. As our the advocate could also be termed defense attorney. <laughs> he comes to our help. He's our advocate. He's our counselor. He's our convictor. He's our comforter. And he walks along through life with us. Jesus left, but he sent the Spirit to fill us and to walk with us through the rest of life. So the Spirit is still a Savior that continually saves us from the power of sin. Jesus, the Savior, saves us from the guilt of sin. The Spirit of Jesus saves us from the power of sin. We no longer are bound in our day-to-day, everyday, walking around lives by the power of sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. We no longer have to bow to its power. We're free now through Jesus Christ and the spirit he left us. It keeps us working out our salvation. The introduction to 1 John in the Passion Translation Bible says this. It says, Jesus is our standard for living, the one in whom we are to actively remain. And we see that so many times throughout the Bible, especially the Gospels. We're to abide in him, to remain in him. That's why he sent us his spirit so that we could do that. So that we could remain in and live in the very spirit of Jesus. But he's our standard for living, so his spirit helps us live to that standard. His spirit helps us do what we can't do on our own. So if number one today is that choosing to live in the light prevents us from sinning in the dark... The number two is that living in the light comes with proof. Living in the light comes with proof. So we'll pick back up chapter 2, verse 3. And we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. 
is how we're sure that we know him, if we see ourselves obeying his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. That's, again, we're not living out the way of Jesus, but we've slapped his name on our lives, so we're lying about who he is. Those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That's how we know we are living in him. How many of you, like, either before you got married or while you were married or thinking about marriage one day were like, I really want someone who loves me, like, 50%. 100 is just too much. It's overbearing. I don't need someone to love all of me. I just want them to love me, like, for my good traits, and I totally get it if they don't love me for my bad traits. I just want them to love me, like, maybe Monday through Wednesday and every other weekend, and that's, that's good enough for me. Like, I just can't expect anyone to love me more. He says, those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. I'm not saying if you don't follow all of God's commandments, you don't love him at all. But don't we want to completely love him with our whole entire life? And shouldn't we understand that God would want us to completely love him? Because who of us in this room don't want to be completely loved for everything flaws and all, good days and bad days, bad hair days and good hair days, all of the things. We want to be loved completely and wholly. We want to be loved that way, so why shouldn't God want to be loved that way? He didn't have to make us. <laughs> he could have just kept on being him and the angels and the Trinity up there in heaven. Just They already say holy, holy, holy all day long, but he made us anyway to worship him, to love him, to be in relationship so he could pour out good gifts on us. So he wants us to love him completely. Living in the light comes with proof. Another version says it this way. If someone claims, I have, I have come to know God by experience, yet doesn't keep God's commands. It's more than experience. Having a relationship with God isn't just when we feel it. Now we get like the butterflies and all of that, but anyone who's been in any sort of long-term relationship with anyone knows the original excitement does not last forever. It is not every moment butterflies and rainbows, right? So what about when the experience isn't happening? Do you still love your spouse? What about when your kids are in rebellion? Do you still love them? What about when they just colored all over the walls in Sharpie? That's the line. That's the line right there. <laughs> we still love them and we love them completely, right? Or at least we try to love them completely. It's not just about the positive experience. It's also about the choice to keep the commands of God, to follow his way of living, to live up to the standards that God's given us. And this isn't like some high standard expectation on a pedestal that we're constantly failing and falling short of. This is God's spirit in me helping me to progressively over time as I put in the work and then I start to just want to and like it and it starts to come more naturally over time start to live towards the standard of the life that Jesus set for us relationship with God equals obedience action and fruit in life that looks like Jesus obedience action and fruit in life I'm going to say that again relationship with God equals obedience, action, and fruit in life that looks like Jesus' obedience, action, and fruit in his life. We want our lives to look more and more. The more we come close to God, the more we remain in the spirit, 
The more we learn about who Jesus is, we want our lives to look more and more like the same obedience, action, and fruit that Jesus produced in his life. That's our goal as Jesus followers. Knowing God can't be based off of experience alone. Obeying God's way of living is the proof and evidence of coming to know God. It's not the means of knowing God. This was in another study, a commentary I was reading on this. Obeying God's way of living is the proof and the evidence of coming to know God, not the means of knowing God. We can know God. He can save us before anything in our life changes. But the proof that we have come to know him and are continually growing in our knowledge of him and our relationship with him, the proof of that is that we are uh, obeying his way of living, that we're living the way he instructed and that he did himself. That's not how we get into relation with God. It is not a checklist to get to heaven. It is not a checklist to be saved. It is not a checklist to be a Christian. But as we continue to know God and live with him and let his spirit transform our lives, the boxes start to be checked all on their own. We start to want to check those boxes because we want to show him how completely we love him. I was reading last night in the book Practicing the Presence of God, uh, written by a guy who knew Brother Lawrence in some of Brother Lawrence's letters. He was a Parisian monk in like the 15th century or something like that. And um, I never actually knew this about him. I knew he helped in the kitchen. He served in the kitchen. But he was also paralyzed, I think, from the waist down and was in, like, whatever a wheelchair would have been in the 15th century. I don't know. Do they have wheelchairs in the 15th century? Someone let me know. Anyway, so he constantly was trying to practice God's presence in everything in his life and washing the dishes and taking orders and living in a monastery and talking to people. And everything that he did, he wanted to practice the presence of God. And he says we start with action that we have to put in effort in. And eventually it starts to naturally pour out of our lives. At first it might feel like a checklist. And I want to encourage you not to stop just because it feels like a checklist. But surrender the checklist to God. I used to pray all the time, God, I just want to want to want you. Like I don't want to seek you right now. But I want to want to. Can you please just put in the desire to want you? You don't, it doesn't mean you stop reading the word. It doesn't mean you stop coming to church. It doesn't mean you stop loving people and serving people just because it feels like a duty or a checklist. It's going to sometimes. I'm sure Jesus wasn't super excited to go be tortured, stripped naked, and hung on a cross for us. But he did it. It was his checklist item. And he did it anyway because he loved us and he wanted to prove it with his life and with his actions. And so we can do the checklist, not for the sake of the checklist, but for the sake of surrendering the checklist to God that our hearts might change through knowing him more. That our hearts might change through knowing him more. 1 John 2, verse 5 and 6 says this, But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That's how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. The intimacy with God, how close we are with God, is proven by our lifestyle. It's shown by our lifestyle. Walking in the way of Jesus, practicing the same spiritual practices he did, the same rhythms and disciplines that he did, ministering to others in love in the same way that he did, striving to live holy because he is holy. Those are the things that start to prove that we are walking in him, that we are knowing him more and more, that, that looking like Jesus increases as our relationship with him increases. Those should go together. Those should correlate. 
Um, so I have an example of this with me and Kyle. It's fun being co-pastors who both preach and are married because now it's not just like when I was growing up, it was my dad always telling stories about me while I was sitting and listening and I visited his church last week and he was still talking about me and I am 30, how old am I? 32 now. <laughs> Sorry, pregnancy brain. I don't remember my age. Um, and he was still talking, he talked about me like two or three times. I'm like, is this just because I'm in the room or do you just always talk about me? I don't know what it is. He was like pointing to me in the back. He's like, my daughter's here. You can ask her. And I was like, don't. Don't come talk to me. Don't, don't come talk. <laughs> but now I get to tell stories about my husband, but then he gets to tell stories about me. So whatever. Anyway, at least it's equal. So anyway, I was sending Kyle this week some name ideas for this series because even though we're three weeks in, we hadn't come up with a name for the series. Uh, so I was sending him some ideas about this. I sent him these. Now think, just think about like getting Kyle's head and be like, what would he think? would be a good name for a series, okay? So I sent him these, Love in the Light, Love and Light, Shining Love, Love That Shines, Bright Love. So, I, I mean, who, some people, maybe you think you know what he might have guessed or you know what you would have picked. Um, before I sent it, I knew exactly which one he was going to pick. I knew exactly which one he was going to pick, Bright Love, and that's the one he picked. And I knew that because he is in love with this message I did a year and a half or so ago called Bright Church. I don't even think I named it Bright Church. He renamed it. I named it something else, and he renamed it Bright Church. But he has preached it in several different places over the past couple of years. And it's like his go-to one to preach when he goes to other churches is this message called Bright Church. And so he can't stop talking about that name about everything, like Bright Church this, Bright Church that, Bright Church, Bright Church, Bright Church. And so I knew when I sent Bright Love, that was immediately going to be the one that he wanted. I know him intimately because I'm in so many different areas of his life with him, right? A lot of you guys just know him on Sunday mornings. So you wouldn't know he'd pick Bright Love because you didn't know he's preached it at like three other churches or that he talks about it all the time, right? Or that, the Bright Church one. Because I know him deeply, I know him in all these different areas of life, and so it informs how I live and the choices that I make, my knowledge of what he's going to pick or what he's going to do, and it's the same way in our relationship with God. John is really trying to get us to know the difference between knowing the stuff versus walking the talk or talking the talk versus feeling the feels versus walking the walk. He doesn't want us to just know the stuff, talk the talk, feel the feels. He wants us to walk the walk, and that includes all of the above altogether. So we get to experience all of that in our walk with him, but that we're actually living it out in our lives, proving that we belong to Jesus. So knowing God equals fruit plus obedience, and fruit plus obedience equals holiness or living different like Jesus lived. Holy does not mean perfection. Holy means we're set apart. We're set apart from the ways of the world, from the looks of the world. We're set apart for something special, for something with a purpose. Okay, so holiness, when Jesus says, be holy as I am holy, when he um, says that we are to live holy lives, he's not saying you have to be perfect like I am perfect. You have to live a perfect life, and you're failing every single time you mess up. That's not the point of it. It's are we living set apart? Are we living the way Jesus lived that looked different from this world? Knowing God is going to be shown by fruit and obedience, 
is going to be shown out in holiness as we grow in that, living different like Jesus lived different. So I want to um, get some little images up here. Is it going to be on the back of the image? I think there's a one that says, no God. So how many of you have ever heard us say, no God, find freedom, discover purpose, make a difference? Never heard us say that before? Okay, so that's like the mission of this church is to help people know God, find freedom, discover purpose, make a difference. And our goal is that we sound so much like a broken record that all of you are saying it in your sleep. So, know God, find freedom, discover purpose, make a difference. I want to take a moment here and go these one by one with these little images, and I'm going to explain them. So, knowing God is like our root system. Okay, we're rooted in Him. We're remaining in him. We're getting to know him. Our roots are going deeper and deeper and deeper. But there's not a whole lot to show for it yet. Once our root system is healthy and starts to grow deeper, then all of a sudden something comes sprouting up from the ground. We find freedom from all of this baggage and the rocks and the dirt that have been holding us down. We've started to heal up and clean up our root system. So we get freedom to come up out of that. We're no longer dead in sin and buried. We're now brought to life. And so we sprout into freedom. Next, when we discover purpose, oh my goodness, I'm a tree, and I know I'm a fruit tree, but I have no clue what kind of fruit I am destined to produce. And then all of a sudden, we get an orange. I love oranges. They're so good. They're so good. One of my friends I was talking to about this analogy, she said, or a kumquat. I was like, what in the world is a kumquat? I have no, apparently it's something on the West Coast. Anyway, I did not know what a kumquat was, so that's obviously not my purpose in life. But discover purpose, you produce an orange. All of a sudden, you know what kind of tree you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be a tree that produces a specific type of fruit because God made it in your DNA all the way down in the root system exactly how you are supposed to be and what you are supposed to do. And then when we make a difference, it's when we take that fruit and we give it away. We weren't made to just be a pretty little fruit tree and let them all fall off and rot at our base. We were made to produce fruit that is good to give away. And that's when we start to make a difference. That's what this is about. That is what we're supposed, our knowing God isn't just to know him. Our knowing God isn't just the warm and fuzzies. Our knowing God isn't just to tell everyone else how they should be doing it, how they're doing it right, and what we're against. Our, our reason for knowing God is to be able to sprout up, discover our purpose, and give that goodness away that God shared with us. We're supposed to give away the fruit of our life as we go through this process. So number two is living in the light comes with proof. Number three is living in the light comes from a revelation of God's love for us. Living in the light comes from a revelation of God's love for us. That he will reveal to us, he'll open our eyes to fully understand the depths of his love. How wide and deep and vast they are. How much it covers. 1 John 2, 7 through 8. He says this, dear friends, I'm not writing a new commandment for you. This is nothing new. Rather, it's an old one you've had from the beginning. This old commandment to love one another is the same message you've heard before, yet it is also New, enter revelation. Jesus lived the truth of this commandment, and you also are living it. For the darkness is disappearing, and the true light is already shining. So let's break this down. The old commandment from the beginning, we see it in Leviticus 19.18. God's giving the initial law. He gave law so that we know what sin is. 
That's the reason he gave us law. In 1918, it says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So there it is. Love your neighbor as your as yourself right there. Then Jesus came, and he fulfilled the Old Testament commands by bringing them new life, by setting a higher standard, by elevating them to a new place, not abolishing them. He didn't say, okay, everything in the Old Testament is done. We don't need it anymore. He gave them new life. So here's the new elevated commandment John is talking about. Jesus, in the book of John, chapter 13, Verse 34 says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. There's the new commandment that he gives. So Jesus lived the truth of this commandment, and now you are living it, he says. Living the truth is the revelation of it. We can know the truth, but when we're able to then live it out through the power of the Holy Spirit, that's the revelation of of the truth. In this place, we're talking specifically about the revelation of his love. It's the life of the commandment, not just a rule. Revelation is the life of the commandment, not just the knowledge of the rule. The kingdom of God is here, and it's coming ever since Jesus came and breathed new life into it through his life and through his spirit. So number three is living in the light comes from a revelation of God's love. Number four is living in the light loves people towards Jesus' way of life. Living in the light loves people towards Jesus' way of life. We need to love everyone, right? We know that's kind of a shoe in What that means, what that looks like varies from person to person and what we're willing to do or not do. But whatever we do, if we live in the light, if we're loving people, if it's about having proof that we've lived in the light, it loves people towards Jesus' way of life. There's a really great song called As You Find Me. I don't know if you guys have heard it before or not, but he loves us enough to love us just as he finds us as we are. But then the song goes on to say, but you love me too much to leave me there. Our love goes beyond patting them on the back where they are and it loves them into a new way of life. On the Holy Spirit, he's the one who does the convicting. He's the one who does the counseling. He's the one who does all of those things. But we love people towards Jesus' way of life. 1 John 2, 9 through 11 says this, if anyone claims, I am living in the light, but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. Another verse talks about this stumbling idea. Of we're either loving them and not causing them to stumble, or we're loving them, and so we're all stumbling everywhere. Does the way we live cause others to stumble? Does it cause them to give in to gossip? Does it cause them to give in to sin? Does it justify the way that they're living? Or does it point them towards a new way of life? Does it point them towards truth? Does it point them towards Jesus and his way of living? Or are we still blinded and stumbling all over each other? This chapter starts with, even if we do sin, he forgives. There's grace for us even when we do. That's that difference between holiness being perfection versus holiness being set apart and his grace to cover us in our weaknesses. When Paul was discussing God's grace like this, 
in one of his, the letters to his church in Romans. He asks in Romans 6, 1, well then should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Doesn't mean we're not gonna fall. It says when you sin, he has the one who has atoned. It covers our sins. There's grace for it. But do we take that as our attitude inside and say, well then, there's grace to cover it, so it's fine. I'm just gonna, this is my one sin. I'm gonna keep it. I'm gonna keep walking in it. I'm gonna justify it. I'm gonna excuse it. No, it says we don't have to live under the power of that sin anymore. Romans 6, starting in verse 6, goes on to say, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ, so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We know in the coming resurrection of the dead, when Jesus comes back to take us all, and we know in this life, when we have life, true life in this life while we are still here, that we get that because we died with Christ. We die to the power of sin. We die to the things we want just because it's what we want so that we can give over to what God wants, what he's called us to do, who he's called us to be. So why not keep sinning if there's grace? Because it's an affront to his grace. How many of you have ever been like, okay, this is a good teaching example. I'm gonna give my kids some grace and tell them about God's grace or something. Or you just like let it go for now. Or I'm not talking about choosing your battles. We have to choose our battles or else we'd be in power struggles all day long every day of our lives in the parenting world. But if you ever like something big has happened, you're like, okay, I sit you down this time, even though normally the pay per consequence of this sin is to lose your iPod for a week. I'm going to say that we're only going to do it for a day. You still have to pay for it. You still have to pay the price for something, right? But I'm going to show you about grace where I'm going to take on the punishment for you or whatever. Maybe you don't talk about it like that. It's like getting all sermony with your kids, which is a good idea to do sometimes. I'm not going to lie. But you let it, you give them grace for it. You're like, oh, they did not sleep at all last night or they had nightmares all night last night. I'm gonna give them grace for this one. But what if then every single day, you're like, well, there's grace for that. So I'm gonna keep writing on all the walls with Sharpies whenever I want to. Whether I had nightmares all night last night or not, because mom will give me grace for that. How does that make you feel as the grace giver in the house? That's not what God wants for us. That's not what we want for our children. We want to give them grace so that they are grateful and they know that we love them and they understand it. Not so that we keep being an affront to his grace and keep saying, well, you gave me grace. There's grace that covers it. So I'm just going to keep on going back to my own vomit. So like a dog returns to his own vomit, so a sinner returns to his sin. It gives the power back to sin when we do that. It says, now I'm just gonna let the power of sin rule me. I'm gonna be a slave to sin. And because it causes others to stumble, because we are essentially just lying about who God is and what his grace is actually for, it's for freedom. His grace is for us to have freedom, not for us to cause others to stumble, not for us to give the power over to sin. It's for us to live in freedom. Can you all stand with me as we wrap up, as we pray? as we move into a time to respond to whatever it is the Holy Spirit speaking in your life. If you could close your eyes and pray with me. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your grace. 
for the atoning sacrifice you made at the cross. And we also thank you that it's not just done there, that you've given us an advocate, a helper, your saving spirit, your redeeming spirit you've given us so that we can continue to walk in your way of life, so that we can continue to know you, to be empowered by you, to be free from the power of sin in our life, so that we not only are living in the light ourselves, but we're shining light to those around us, that we're receiving revelation light and shining it to others so that they also know your love for us. With everyone still having their heads bowed and their eyes closed, I want to think first about you if you you've been living with God you've been living for God you've been saved from your sin but maybe there either hasn't been a whole lot of the spirit continuing to free me from the power of sin the spirit continuing to walk me through this life or maybe you're kind of at a standstill and there hasn't been a lot of the spirit moving you forward lately maybe he used to a lot and you used to remain in the spirit but there's more and you know there's more there's more movement to be had there's more forward motion to be made and you want to continue to press on towards living that set apart life like Jesus did if that's you you're already a Christ follower you know you just want more of him if that's you today I'm not going to ask you to do anything right this moment but I am going to ask you to seriously pray and consider where you're standing that when we go into this response song about Christ be magnified in me the way I live what I say what I do that Jesus you would be made more of and I would be made less. You would be made more of. That as we go into this response time, you would consider either going to someone for prayer or kneeling at the altar for prayer or putting something up on the cross that you think might be holding you back. You would take these next couple moments before we go into the song and that you say, Holy Spirit, where am I holding you back from working in my life, from moving in my life, from continually transforming me to walk more and more like Jesus. Some of you, maybe it is a sin that you haven't surrendered. You said, well, there's grace for that. This is just my struggle. No, we're to die to it. Maybe that's what you need to write down on your little cross card. You do it anonymously. You don't put your name on it and you just stick it up there at the cross. I want you to pray about it and I want you to be obedient. That is a key verse in this. If the Holy Spirit's nudging you even a little bit, to come up and lay it down at the altar or to come up and confess it to the prayer team or to come up and nail it to the cross, whatever it is, be obedient. That is the first step we have to take is to be obedient to what he's calling and telling us to do. And then there's others of you in this room who never had that moment. Everyone's head still bowed and eyes still closed. There's others of you who have never had that moment where Jesus just saved you right here and there from the guilt and the shame and the condemnation of sin. And if that's you today, what I want you to do is on the count of three, I want you to raise your hand just as that first physical action of obedience. On the count of three, if that's you today, you want Jesus to save you from the guilt and the punishment and the shame that you are feeling over your sin and you've never given your life to him as your savior from that. If that's you, raise your hand. One, two, three. Raise your hand if that's the decision you're making today. Thank you so much. Thank you. You guys can put your hands down. I want all of us to pray this prayer together. If you could repeat after me, we're giving our lives to him, even again for us, some of us for the first time, whether you raise your hand or not. Dear Jesus, I admit my sin. I know I'm a sinner. I know you're the savior. Forgive me of my sins. I believe that you can forgive me. And I accept your forgiveness today. I accept you as the savior. 
Help me to live my life for you. Give me the Holy Spirit to continuously live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, Victory Faith, can we celebrate with those who made that decision today? If you did make that decision, whether you